This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. When economists are trying to gauge the path of growth or jobs or many other elements in the economy, they usually go by the numbers. What do the numbers actually say? But a new book says that economists probably should add something to the equation, reading more books, and that might change their thinking slightly, maybe their philosophy, and actually increase their ability to make correct predictions. The book is titled Sense and Sensibility, Sense being C-E-N-T-S, What Economics Can Learn from the Humanities. The authors of the book are Gary Morrison, who's a professor of the arts and humanities, as well as professor of Slavic languages and literatures at uh, Northwestern University, and also by Morton Shapiro, who is president of Northwestern University. He's also a professor of economics there, and they join us from the Northwestern campus uh, out by Chicago. Gentlemen, great to have you with us today. Great to be here. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. And finding out that you are both formerly of the Penn community. That's right. Great. This, to- is, this is true. I taught uh, briefly at Wharton, and I really love the students there. They're fantastic. Well, it, it is great to have you both uh, back in the uh, in the Penn-Wharton community, at least for the next 30 minutes or so. Um, I, whoever would like to take this, let's start out by by the idea of bringing this book forward. Well, this is Morty. I could say a few words and bring it yep. to Saul. Saul and I teach a course, an undergraduate course here at Northwestern University on the different disciplines and what they can learn from each other. And it really came out of this course that we've now taught, I think, Saul, seven years in a row. And um, we got this idea that, you know, what could economics learn from the humanities? I mean, as you pointed out, specifically from literature, but mm-hmm. even more broadly from other hu- humanistic fields. And even I would argue the qualitative social sciences, sociology, anthropology, mm-hmm. history, and the like. Mr. Morrison? Yeah, we had the idea that different disciplines don't just deal with different subject matter. They see the world differently. Their whole vision of people is different. And very often, they don't understand each other to the point where uh, each one not only doesn't accept the other's beliefs, but can't really believe the other believes what they say they believe. So. You know, I was amazed that um, economists actually think that people always behave according to their best self-interest, that you right. can mathematicize, you know, human behavior, that culture is irrelevant. Uh, they can't really believe this, can they? And, and by the same token, um, economists have trouble believing what humanists uh, sometimes believe. Um, so that m- gave a lot of energy to the class as we try to... Uh, discuss each other's questions uh, in our own framework. Morty, what do you think the, the, the overall impact has been, uh, indirectly, directly, uh, of not having th- this kind of a basis behind uh, what economists t- truly do on a day-in, day-out basis? Well, I think the fact that our field, I mean, I love, first of all, I love teaching and publishing and economics. I yeah. have a day job in administration, but I, nothing makes me prouder than to be a professor of economics. I've been doing it almost four decades now. But our field, while we look outside of economics for topics, we don't really engage with the literatures of other fields. There was a recent survey of U.S. professors at different colleges and universities, and they broke them down by field, and they asked the following simple question, is it better to stay to your own field or is a multidisciplinary approach potentially more productive? And 79% uh, 
of psychology professors said it's better to go outside your field, 73% of sociology professors, 68% of history professors, but only 42% of economics professors said hmm. that you should go outside your field. And one, ever. I mean, yeah, ever. ever. And one observer actually talked about this in the New York Times a couple of months ago and, and, and had the, the big sentence that was bolded in that article was, do you believe that 58% of economics professors, if this survey is generalizable, as we assume it is, that 58% of economics professors think there's nothing to learn from any other field. Right. And, you know, in other field since then, since actually the book was in press, so that statistic isn't in it, but um, we've come across other studies that looked at how often people in specific disciplines cite people outside their discipline, and no surprise. Once again, economics, very rare to cite anyone outside the field of economics. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot we leave on the table. It's a great field, but it could be so much better if we were less uh, insular. Saul? Yeah, you sometimes get the impression that economists think, well, all these other fields are, you know, peopled by muddled-headed professors who can ask good questions but haven't a clue what a rigorous systematic answer is. So let them provide the questions and we'll provide all the answers. Uh, And, you know, that is a kind of idea that they have achieved a hard science sort of modeled on uh, Newtonian mechanics, whereas everybody else is just sort of muddling along. But nothing in actual predictive behavior suggests that they actually have achieved such a hard science. It is interesting because going off of, uh, of Morty of what you said a second ago re- regarding the data about looking outside one's own field uh, for information, it, it did make me wonder as to whether or not uh, economists in general are so geared on the numbers themselves and how hard the data points are surrounding whether it be job growth, GDP, whatever it might be, that that is truly what they they are focused on 24-7, 365, and it just it doesn't lend itself to going outside. They, I mean, obviously, the need is there if you go off of, uh, some, of the, some of the data that you just uh, laid out, but they, they are so geared that they, they never even consider it as an option. I, I think that's a very good point, but I think they're also geared to a mathematical approach, which, you know, I'm, I do applied econometrics, so I have nothing against math and statistics, but it's very hard to put in things like culture, right? You know, yeah. how do you how do you put that into a mathematical formula? So you, you, what do you tend to do? You tend to, you know, come up with behavioral models, and they are quite often are the foundation for our predicted, predictive models, and, and they tend to be very naive in, in terms of real, true human behavior. Um, I mean, you would think that we would engage more with the field of psychology if you're talking about behavioral models, but, um, you know, the literature is pretty clear about that. We we don't. And, you know, a lot of economists work on the cycle of poverty, but yet how often do they cite anyone in sociology or anthropology? They're economists. I have friends who work on voting behavior, but you know, are they really engaged with the literature and political science? A number of people work on a distant past, but, you know, do they truly try to integrate the understanding from historians? And, and the answer tends to be no. And I think it's part, as you said, uh, focus on numbers, but part of it is, uh, uh, you know, we're not trained that way. We're not comfortable with things that we can't put into an equation. 
And I think we lose a lot because of that. I'm guessing that you, that you uh, obviously are someone that loves literature. What do you think that that having a, a love for literature has done for you as, as a professor of economics? Well, I, I think it's made me a lot more humble. <laughs> you know, I start off in the book, and Saul and I both tell stories about how we began to think that there was some uh, we could have a productive dialogue that maybe we can contribute to in a small way as we try to in this book between the humanities and economics. And, um, you know, when I think about it, I've never really been primarily a, 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 an economist who does works in the developing world, although I, I did some of this, particularly early in my career. And I tell the story early on of working in Africa uh, as a consultant for the World Bank and, and, you know, what I miss by not truly understanding the the countries in which I, I worked. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think a lot of people, and there's enormous literature, as you know, about the, you know, the good things and the many bad things from the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the like. And, you know, development economics has, in certain continents, a pretty good story. But where I was working, the continent of Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, the story isn't all that good. And I think yeah. if we really engaged with an understanding of the history, the politics, the religion, the, soci- so, the sociology of the family. And, you know, how do you learn that? I think you'd learn it in part through the literature. And I, I, and I look back now and I think that if I really engaged and, and rather than just tried to get the prices right and applied the same sort of basic uh, economic model towards successful development, which isn't always that successful, and I really learned more about the nuances of the cultures of the particular countries, I think the policies would have been a lot more effective. You need to be able to put yourself in the position of the people you're trying to help. Right. They're not all the same. Culture, values will differ. They won't respond the same way to the same uh, measures. And what great literature is is really best at, uh, the great realist novels in particular, is teaching empathy. Because to read one of these works, you constantly, page by page, see the world from inside the perspective of a person unlike yourself with different, a different gender, values, culture period, norms, and you get a lot of practice in empathy, which is, I mean, other disciplines can tell you you should empathize, but just to read a great novel, you get a lot of practice in it. And once you start thinking that way, uh, you've read a lot of novels, hundreds of pages of doing it, it becomes natural for you to say, well, what is it going to feel like to the people I'm trying to help? How might they respond? That becomes a natural... You might not have the answer, right. but to ask the question becomes second nature. That was going to be my next question playing off of that, is that just being able to ask the question, that that's taking one step in the right direction in this process, correct, Saul? Yes, that's right. And you, you want it to be a sort of question you, you always ask, both for effectiveness, but also there's an ethical dimension here right. that, uh, you know seeing it from other people's points of view, what you think helps them, they may not regard as helpful. What you think is good, they may not regard as good. What does it look like to them? One would think that that would be a crucial thing. And empathy, intellectual as well as emotional, is, is what you need for that. And, and ethics is one of the things that, that you bring up in the book, and, and I wanted to discuss that for a minute as well, because you say that, that, that there is a divide between uh, what economists believe and the actual kind of genre of ethics, that realistically economists are not trained to think about ethics a lot, correct? Yes. I mean, that's 
uh, you know, it's you might try to translate ethical questions into some form that you could uh, mathematicize, but that gives you a very uh, p- pale image of the complexity of uh, of ethical questions. Uh, in fact, that's what an ethical question is. It's one where it's very hard to say what the right answer is. Uh, you know, it's different from a question of whether to be ethical. An ethical question is one that reflects the complexity of ethical situations where you need judgment, and judgment, by its very nature, is something you can't write a formula for. Morty? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I think that if we really engage with uh, more with philosophy, I mean, it's not the comparative advantage of my field, um, but if we engaged more, I, th- I think not only could our policies be more effective, I think they could be more just. And the book is full of examples of that, from development economics to uh, health economics yeah. to you know economics of the family and on and on to my specific field, which is economics of higher education. And getting back to the course, as you kindly asked us about in the beginning, um, it actually gives credit through the general distribution requirements that we have at Northwestern, not for economics, uh, but most people took it, take it for credit in ethics and values because every single topic we end up when we say, okay, this is what an economist might say. This is what other fields might contribute to that dialogue. But is it fair? Is it the right thing to do? Well, let's specifically touch on, on two of those points that uh, that you just uh, focused on. Since you teach about the economics of higher ed, and then there's also uh, healthcare as well, those are two very important areas when you think about uh, the U.S. culture right now. Obviously, the cost of, of college is something that a lot of people are, are writing about, and obviously healthcare is one of the most important topics we have in, in this country right now. How do you think that is impacted, and maybe even to a degree in your teaching, in having this understanding for uh, for the humanities and for culture and for a, a lot of factors that probably some economists don't think about? Well, let me start. Maybe I, I could do a little bit about economics of higher education, and maybe Saul could talk a little bit about the part of our book about the market for organs, human organs. Yep. Um, you know, there's always a lot of people who say universities, colleges and universities, not-for-profit colleges and universities, should be more like businesses. And one thing that came out of that over in recent decades is the concept of uh, enrollment management, where you tie historically the admissions was very separated um, from financial aid. But if you're going to be more like a business, you're going to take advantage and try to estimate that demand curve and figure out where the, what the price elasticity of demand really is. And for example, if you have someone who's going to buy your product, if it's undergraduate education in this context, you know, and they're going to buy it anyway at a very high price, you're not going to discount off the sticker price. Uh, yet, if you look at the millions of students at uh, not-for-profit private colleges and universities in this country, only 14% pay the sticker price. The other 86% get a discount off that sticker price, in many cases, a very substantial one. So the temptation is to try to use your data and it's not just big data, it's other data as well, to try to figure out whether what the price point is, what that reservation price is for uh, a student and his or her family. And if it turns out, it's very, it's remarkably easy, as we describe in the book, to come up with a prediction of whether someone who applies to your college or university would accept an offer of admission. Right. And you look at all kinds of things about 
what their test scores are, or they come, did they come from a feeder high school, or they uh, a parent went there, um, what their you know, major. what their major is, what their interests are, and in addition, they very significantly tip their hand about their interests. They they come on the tour. They if you send a college counselor to their high school, they sign up and they give their name, and they attend a session, and they come onto the campus and they sign up for the tour. And that's the sort of thing that if we were selling uh, automobiles, we would love to have consumers tip their hand. Um, you know, somebody who goes on the tour and writes letters and attends the, 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 the college preview day and all that is like somebody coming to a BMW uh, dealer and saying, hey, you know, I only drive Beamers and, uh, you know, I, 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 this is my sixth in a row and, and I just love this car and I couldn't see myself anywhere else. You know, I see that it's listed at 45000 What are you going to charge me? And they're going to say 45000 right? So, you know, they tip their hand. And, and rather naively, students and their families tip their hands as well. And uh, we describe uh, in the book, it was based on, a, on an, uh, an article that I've done, I did a while ago, that you could easily predict the yield. In other words, the, percent, the likelihood someone's going to come. So if you predict someone's out at 90%, you know that kid is going to come if you admit him or her. Um, what's the real economic reason to cut the price? They're going to come anyway. Right. Um, but yet, if it's need-based aid, if it's merit aid, which by definition is a is reducing the price below what the family can afford to pay, um, then it's one thing. And even then, Saul would probably argue you shouldn't use such a yield formula, even in the allocation of merit aid. I, I disagree, but I can see why it's 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 misleading. It's not transparent. Yeah, if you but say you're going to do it, it's okay. But it's the misleading well, if you, part. If you say you're going to do me. it, people aren't going to tip their hands, though, well, Saul, right? right? But certainly for the need-based aid, you know, you're saying, okay, you're going to come anyway. And you can afford to pay out of the sixty-five thousand all-in tuition and room and board. You can pay forty, but we're going to charge you fifty right. because we know you're going to come anyway. That might be good business, but it makes somebody take out a larger loan than they have the capacity to pay off. So uh, you know that's I think it's sleazy and it's unfair, and that's just one of many examples in the book of where good economics isn't good policy. So so I'll go ahead about the the healthcare side of things. Well. One of the examples we talk about in the book is uh, Gary Becker's last article, the economist Gary Becker, on whether there should be a market for kidneys. And he thinks it's perfectly obvious that um, there should be and that someday people will look back and be amazed that anyone ever thought different. After all, there are a lot of people who um, die uh, from lack of a kidney transplant and many people who'd be willing to sell it. Why not? Why not just have a market? Everyone is better off. And th there's a real point there. It might really save lives. And from that perspective, it's a, it's a strong argument. But there are other questions that don't come up there. What, what happens when you treat the human body as you know, so, so much matter, when you think of people as not being themselves but owning themselves? Uh -huh. uh, what kind of uh, morals does that encourage? Uh, does it encourage let's say, um, government policy that might harvest organs of criminals. I mean, you can see that it changes your view of people. So does that mean we shouldn't do it? Adding the humanist perspective there doesn't say that. It just says the question is quite complicated. Right. The, the real objection that, that I would have is 
Becker's notion that it's a simple question, not necessarily that his answer is wrong, but the question is complicated. And if you start thinking in ethical terms that economists have trouble with, you see that a simple question is not so simple. But again, if, if you're bringing the, the humanist viewpoint uh, to that particular issue or, you know, a wide range of them, you're bringing different information to the table that in many cases hasn't been considered. And as you both have kind of alluded to, it could very well change the thought process, change the policy, you know, yes. change a variety of different factors moving forward. And this would lead me to my next question is, if we were to start to do that more often, Saul, what do you think the impact would be? What do you, I mean, obviously it could be on a variety of different levels where it could be, but what do you think the impact would be? Well, I think the first impact would be that the advice that economists offer would be stated less categorically and more humbly. It would be like... Insofar as this is the consideration, this would be the best answer. But what else is there? Insofar as the world looks like uh, the way our models say, this is probably the result. That's very different from the kind of categorical answers that, that you do get. And the claims you make for a recommendation are as important as the recommendation itself, how mm -hmm. sure you are, um, how sure you are that there's nothing else to consider. That would make a big difference in, in uh, changing the hubris of um, bureaucrats or economists who actually set policy. Morty? I, I think that's a very good summary. Um, you know, the book, again, is full of examples of how we would do things somewhat differently. Uh, very early on when we talk about uh, as I mentioned before, how we got into this, decided to teach this course together, and we started rethinking our fields a little bit. Uh, I tell the story of the the infamous World Bank memo, and some of you, some of your listeners undoubtedly remember this. It was yeah. about 25 years ago, and it was uh, unfortunately associated with uh, Larry, Summers, Larry Summers, great economist, but at the time chief economist for the World Bank. He, he signed it, but he didn't write it, so we know a lot about that. But anyway, um, the memo was a perfect example of the kind of economics that over a lot of my career I, I, I would teach. And, and, you know, the topic was a simple one. Where do you best relocate toxic waste to where in the world? And it's natural that economists would think, well, you know, if, you, if there's an area with high morbidity and mortality and low wages, uh, that's a minimal economic cost. So if people are dying anyway, you know, that might be the efficient place to put it. And that, of course, is what the memo was about. But we we quote the Secretary of the Environment from Brazil. Africa. Yeah, yeah, in Africa. Yeah, So, the, it, you know, Central Africa is naturally not the only place, but this memo talks specifically about Central Africa because people had very high morbidity, high mortality, and not a lot of education. So hence, a low opportunity cost of their time. Um, so we quote the Secretary of the Environment in Brazil, and I, and I think this really captures, even today, 25, 26 years later, a little bit about how economics can be improved. You wrote the right. following. You said, your reasoning is perfectly logical. And I tell you, I mean, it is perfectly logical, right? But right. then he went on to say, but it's totally insane. Your <laughs> thoughts provide a concrete example of the unbelievable alienation, reductionist thinking, social ruthlessness, and the arrogant ignorance of many conventional economists concerning the nature of the world in which we live. And I, I think that's, that's still true. I mean, it, it's sort of, you know, if it were only a so-called narrowly defined academic exercise and you're just doing it for you know, an economics course, and you, you might argue as an economist, would well, it's fine, but people actually listen 
to economists. They, they really do. Um, I just got back from Washington yesterday. And, you know, we have an outsized, outsized impact on policy in the world, in our countries and, and throughout the world. And that means a greater responsibility. That means a responsibility yep. not just to apply our simple behavioral and mathematical models, but to get it right if we're really trying to make the world a better place. So it's just what we're trying to do. So if you're just publishing articles in the AERs somewhere else, then it, it, there's a different level of responsibility. But once it translates into the real world, we better get it right. And I think yep. we'd be much better, as Saul said, if we were humbler and we had a little less hub- hubris. Great to have you both with us. I unfortunately have to end it there as we're at the, getting close to the top of the hour. Morty, Saul, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. It was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Saul Morrison and uh, Morty Shapiro from uh, Northwestern University. The book that they have uh, put together is called Sense and Sensibility, What Economics Can Learn from the Humanities. It is available out now in bookstores and for purchase online as well. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.